welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on November 6th, Lord's Day Service. comes from a couple of passages. One is Proverbs chapter 1. The other is Acts chapter 7. We'll begin reading Proverbs 1 verses 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Acts chapter 7. Picking up in verse 17, this is Stephen's address before the Sanhedrin. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king rose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in the father's house, in his father's house for three months. But when he set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Let us pray. Our Father... We thank you for the gift of your Son, for the gift of your Spirit who dwells in us and who works through us. Lead us now in all truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. What does it take to raise children who are like Moses? How do we train our children to resist the world and withstand the enemies at the gate? We see from Acts chapter 7, it takes wisdom, courage, and don't forget training in Egyptian philosophy. Probably not the thing you were expecting. Maybe we don't want them to be exactly like Moses. But we do want to raise kids who are, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven twenty six, willing to suffer with God's people rather than enjoy the temporary treasures of sin. But before we read about Moses in Hebrews 11, before that we read about Moses' parents. It says that by faith his parents saw that he was 
of good. That is a, a beautiful child. And they saved him. Part of our calling as parents is to help our children walk in wisdom. As we read in Proverbs 1, Solomon wrote that his son may, quote, know wisdom and instruction to give subtlety to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. We live in a cesspool of junk. But I'll tell you this, as bad as we see things around us now, uh, it's actually not a whole lot worse. If you were to, to go back just, say, 150 years ago, right after the period of the Civil War, if you were to go back to that time, you would see a pretty corrupt society in many ways. Read further back in history, you'll see a lot of problems, a lot of sin. Sin has always been with us. The advent of greater technology now just allows you to read about not only the sin in your local place, but the sin everywhere else in the world. You can read about people's sin and corrupt governments all across the world. And now we're trying to even export some of it to other planets as well. Can't keep too much of a bad thing to ourselves. It was harder to come by, perhaps, in the past, but it was still there. In the previous weeks, we've established that raising our children in the paideia of God, as he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it demands that we teach them, that we walk with them in God's ways, but it's not just giving them Scripture, it's teaching them how to apply the Scripture to everything they face. The first time we learn about wisdom is in the book of Exodus. And it's not used in the way we would typically expect. Exodus chapter 31 begins this way. It said, The Lord spake to Moses, saying, See, I have called Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works to work in gold and silver and in brass and cutting of stones, to set them and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And behold, I've given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamot of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I've put wisdom, that they may make all that I've commanded thee. In this passage, wisdom is not depicted as mere reasoning ability. It's, it's expanded. It is the habituated practice of skill, intuition, insight, and imagination in a particular area. So wisdom is not just how do you handle this one situation when you're driving down the road and a car is trying to get over and you don't really want to let them over. It's more than that. It's not just knowing the laws. It's how do I apply those laws here? We all need wisdom 
for our everyday callings, the things that all of us are a part of, whether it's at, it's at school or at home, it's in your, your, your relationships, kids with your parents or parents with your kids or with your spouses, we need wisdom. We also, not just in our relationships, we need wisdom in ethics. We need wisdom in knowing how to be good stewards. Have any of you ever started a garden and killed everything in it? Okay? There's wisdom out there for that. Often, though, the first time you have a garden, it may not work. And then you figure out, oh, it's actually, I'm supposed to water it every day, not fertilize it every day. Maybe, hopefully, you've never done that. Say, a little bit of miracle grow makes it grow a lot. Maybe a lot of miracle grow. Actually, it doesn't work that way. So, so we need wisdom. Natural ability, natural skill in something is not enough. Wisdom comes through practice, through learning how to apply the knowledge you acquire. Have you ever seen a mechanic? And I had one like this years ago. I, I went to high school uh, with his daughter. The man could, he had a scholarship to MIT. He lived in a small rural town in Alabama. His dad did not want him to go and he didn't go. He could, you could drive your car onto his old beat up mechanic shop, which you wouldn't think was very good. He had at least a three to four week waiting list, but he could listen to your car for about 10 seconds and usually tell you exactly what was wrong. Now, I'm sure there's other people like that, but this amazed me as a high school student. Well, he didn't start out when he was six. He didn't walk outside and say, oh, of course, this Toyota needs this thing. No, it was over time. He had to grow in that. He had to learn. That's what we have to do with wisdom in every area of our lives. Paideia demands that we train our children in wisdom as they navigate the swirling waters of the world. But this navigation demands more than head knowledge of Scripture. It is a process of maturity. As with Jesus, who we're told in the book of Luke, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So our calling is to help our children pursue wisdom. We must teach them how to walk in it, how to apply it. Now many parents think, okay, once the kids get to be teenagers, it's kind of getting, they're kind of getting interested in some weird stuff. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy this awesome worldview book. It's about 1,200 pages. It covers every possible situation. I'm going to pick it up and grab, gently toss it on the bed after a little bit of working out to prepare. And so it lands on the bed and it bounces the kid up and you say, here, this will take care of any questions you have. Read it. Report back to me in 10 years. But that's not enough. Now, I know that's hyperbole, and, and, and I'm sh we would not do it to that degree, but sometimes that's our thinking. That it's not bad to give our kids books. If it is, I'm in deep sin. An example and 
a lot of other areas as well. Great, give them books. Give them things to read, but do not stop there. That's just a tool. We have to go further. We don't prepare our children to contend with their enemies at the gate by giving superficial answers to challenging dilemmas. And they're always growing. There's new dilemmas every day, just like the software you have on your phone will be outdated day after tomorrow. The situations your children will face are very different than what you faced. Now, this does not mean you have to listen to the top 10 pop music songs every week, okay? I would not advise that just for your own soul care. But you need to know what's coming into your home. Wisdom is less giving our kids a paint-by-numbers philosophical kit And it's more like teaching them to swim in dragon-infested waters. But it doesn't even stop there. Not only must we teach our kids to swim, we're teaching them to dive for buried treasure. The treasure is all around. But another problem. Some is legitimate treasure and some is fool's gold. So we're teaching them to swim and then to dive. And then while they're diving, avoid all of the monsters out there as well as determine what is good, what should be kept and preserved, and what should be left. Sounds like a pretty easy job. It's all right. If you say too much, I'm going to tap out now. Don't do it. There's more grace than you can ever need from an infinite God. We had the privilege of helping our children in these things. Our words and our lives demonstrate what we believe the treasure really is. So it's not just that we tell our kids, hey, you need to be smarter than that. You need to grow in this area or you need to grow in that area. No, we have to demonstrate what it is. Your kids will be drawn to the types of things you are drawn to. Whatever you prioritize, they will likely prioritize. So if, you, if script, the Scripture is a drudgery for you and family devotion is a drudgery for everyone because you don't really see the need in it, but you do it because all these preachers are saying, I'm supposed to do this. But it's a drag. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> not going to want to do it. They're not going to want to do it because there's all these sad memories associated with it. Like, I remember when Dad made me cry that time because I didn't remember the verse or the story. Or something. No. We, we have to push. We have to push further. As when Moses, as with Moses, when he was a child, his, his parents had to walk in faith. The evil one, just like the evil one then sought to devour the children, the evil one seeks to devour our children. He's never changed. 
He's more overt about it sometimes than others, but he's not changed. But like Moses' parents, we will also one day have to let our children go. We can't hold them forever. And if you try, they will still get away. But it will not be a blessing for you or for them. So the question remains, will they be protected by God's ark as Moses was, or will they face the dragons alone? So let's teach them to walk in the ark, to, to be in the ark. We are accustomed to hearing the story of Moses in a particular way. If you're raised in church, you, you heard this story a lot. Moses was raised by his parents for a time, and then he, went, he was taken to Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh's daughter saw him, and he was taken there. Then he killed the, killed the Egyptian, and then he ran off, where he learned to herd sheep, which is great practice as a, for a, a leader. Learned to herd sheep for 40 years. And then of all those stages, we, of all the, the things that happened in his life, we usually just kind of sideline the time in Egypt. It's like, well, he kind of had to do it because that's the only way he could be saved. Come on. Do you really think that's the only way God could have saved Moses? Could there have been another way? Of course. But not for what God intended for Moses. There was not another way. Acts 7.22 uses particular words for Moses' instruction, and it, it astounded me when I was reading this. This is another instance in Scripture of the word paideia, except it is used in a different way than in the other places. It says that Moses was instructed. That, that, that word in Greek literally, is, it, you can transliterate it, he was paideia'd in the wisdom, the Sophia, of the Egyptians. And he was mighty or powerful in his words and accomplishments. So we should look at Moses more as more than an Israelite who just kind of slid into Pharaoh's house and hopefully he kept his ears closed as long as possible and then got out as quickly as he could. This was a man who was trained in the work of God for a number of years, and then by God's providential hand was sent to Egypt to learn in Egypt. This is not like you're a public school student from a bad, you know, from the, you know, from the Israelite slave school who gets a scholarship to Vanderbilt. This is the equivalent of a child being adopted from a poor family into, let's say, we. A child from a poor family is adopted into the most powerful family in the country and then is sent to a premier private boarding school to the most elite of the elite and then who graduates from Harvard and then goes on to Oxford and then everybody says he comes back and delivers speeches and his, his father was a president, his grandfather was a president and both served two terms and we think he is better than any of them. He has the greatest words. He can, he can move an entire crowd with what he says. And then all of a sudden under bizarre circumstances he just disappears and nobody hears a thing. 
only to reappear a generation later with even greater power, but not returning to his old station. Rather, he returns to lead a slave, not exactly insurrection, but that's certainly what it appeared to Pharaoh. But what's really bizarre, this slave revolt was not led by the slaves. It was led by, for the Egyptians, what they perceived to be the very gods themselves. That Egypt saw the, the plagues of Moses as their own gods turning against them. And Moses' God overturning their gods, turning them around, and throwing everything back in their face. This is the story of Moses in Egypt. Could God have raised up a solitary Israelite, someone who had never been in Egypt? I mean, come on. We like pure people, don't we? Now, wouldn't it have been so much better if he'd just come straight out of the wilderness and breathed thunder? But it wouldn't have worked that way. Certainly God could have done any of these things, but that's not how he worked. He, instead, he took a man who was taught the best of Egyptian lore, who knew the culture, the history, the literature, the wizardry, the science and the speech patterns of the Egyptians. He knew the elite of the elite in Egyptian society. He knew where all the skeletons were buried, in some cases literally, and he knew what their weaknesses were. For this monumental task of leading a people out of Egypt, it would take someone not only filled with the wisdom of God, but also filled with the wisdom of Egypt. Now here we have to beware of something called syncretism. You've probably heard of that word before. Syncretism is something that middle-class and upper-middle-class Americans and just Western people love to do. It's, it's taking the cool parts of a bunch of religions and kind of mixing it together and then just you know, taking whatever you like and getting to do it. So, so think of a New Age person who goes to a somewhat liberal church but also practices Buddhist meditation because it's pretty cool and does the whole vegan thing because that's what everybody, you know, at my work does, and, that's how, and, and so on. You can just fill the gaps. Christian Smith, sociologist at Notre Dame, calls this moral therapeutic deism. The belief that God really likes me and he wants me to be nice to people. And it applies to most Americans. You know, the majority of Americans believe in God, still. But if you try to pin them on what actually God they believe, that's the type of answer you receive. So, so we like syncretism. And I'm not saying, please do not hear anything condoning syncretism. No, we take all knowledge that is from God, beginning with God's Word, but then we can, as Moses did, take the best of the knowledge that, he, that we receive in the world and then use it in the service of the Almighty. It's all His anyway. 
I mean, if you're talking about treasure, if you find gold in the ground, who made that gold? Not you. God did. If you find wisdom from someone, whether his name is Peter or Plato, Plato, not Plato, Plato, where did it come from? The same God. If it's true wisdom. You have no idea what God intends to do with your children or how he intends to use them. Your son may be like Moses or Daniel, who Daniel was another, who was trained in the ways of the Lord, but then trained in all manner of Babylonian philosophy, astrology, magic, and so on, and surpassed the best of the best in Babylon. Or your daughter may be one who is skilled in her work. Someone like Lydia, who we read in the book of Acts, Lydia, she's not just this lady who likes to do a little bit of sewing in her spare time. This woman has wealth. She's running a significant business. She has, she's over a household. And she is walking in prayer. Or Priscilla, who along with her husband Aquila, taught one of the most learned men in all of New Testament history next to the Apostle Paul, that would be Apollos. So how do we teach our children to pursue wisdom? Number one, I'm going to give four things briefly. Number one, we begin with the fear of the Lord. This is where it has to start. There is no other foundation. There is no other place. We begin with the fear of the Lord. As we read earlier, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is the common denominator with Moses, with Daniel. You could talk about Paul as well. He was trained in this. They were taught, yes, they were taught opposing religions. They were taught opposing philosophical systems. But from the beginning, they knew God's word. They knew the fear of the Lord. They did fear the Lord. You can see this in the, in the writing of Moses. You can see it in Daniel. It just pours out. We get more personal information at times about Daniel. And you can just tell. He does his job, and he excels at his job. But his heart was never because he's trying to politically gain ground. He was not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Daniel is a revealer. But he began by walking with God. And Moses walked with God. That's what we must teach. We teach our children to fear the Lord. Because when you fear Him, then you open yourself up to wisdom. So that's the beginning. Number one, begin with the fear of the Lord. Number two, don't confuse high walls with teaching discernment. Don't confuse high walls with teaching discernment. 
What do we do? We see the evil in the world. What do we think? Oh, if I just block out enough stuff, if I, have, if I go ahead and put this 47th filter on all of my Internet devices, and I'm not speaking against filters, okay? Great things. They're gifts. Use them. But don't put your trust in your tools. You can't build walls high enough to keep the world out. You can go live in the middle of the sticks. You could go live in the desert. I tell you what, if you want to see what happens with people who go to the desert, read the life of St. Antony by Athanasius. Read about what St. Antony dealt with in the desert. You would think, if I were to go to the desert, not that you want to, but you say, if I went to the desert, I wouldn't have to deal with any of this mess. There is no internet there. At least yet. But you read about what, what, and again, I'm not telling you to believe every single thing that you read there, but just suffice to say, it was not this time where he wakes up and has sweet communion with the Lord every day, and he, say, and he prays, I'm so thankful I don't have to deal with the temptations of, of life anymore. The way he describes wrestling with demonic entities in the desert is something that will, well, let's just say it would outdo a lot of the literature that's read around this time of year. One day, our children will go into the wine-dark sea of the world. They will either know how to swim or they'll have to learn the hard way. The hard way is they're just kind of tossed out and you say, boy, I really hope they do okay. Now, better to teach them now. Yes, we must protect them. I am not saying do not protect your kids. But protection is something that should gradually be withdrawn. Better to see how your kids will handle things when they are older than just keeping the shield really tight with at least half an inch of room in any direction. And then all of a sudden, okay, you're now 35, so you're free to leave the house. You know how that will work. So do the work now of teaching discernment. Don't pretend that evil doesn't exist. But when we fear the Lord and we are discerning, we are helping our kids. We teach them how to distinguish treasure from fool's gold. So let them wrestle. As we read in a previous week where Paul told Timothy, exercise yourself in Piety in godliness. Number three, acknowledge that there is treasure in God's world even among pagans. We should not pretend that something is 100% perfect if it has the term Christian at the beginning. In fact, we can, I would say we've done a lot of damage to the name of Christ by putting Christian in front of a lot of things that shouldn't I wouldn't want to be associated with. In Genesis, we see the line of Cain developed a lot of things. Some of them should not have been developed. You know, Tower of Babel, really bad idea. As the Lord speaks to that. 
The Egyptian learning of Moses, though, was not all garbage. It was helpful to him in multiple areas. John Calvin's training in Stoicism, the philosophy of Stoicism, helped him in seeing the transcendence of God. You can see, if you read about it, because that was actually Calvin's first published work. It was a translation of one of the ancient philosophers, one of the ancient Stoic philosophers. I believe it was Seneca. But his training in that gave him insight to the being of God. And and look, I'm not saying, oh, go read all the Stoics you can and believe all of it. No, but he was able, with what he knew of God, to discern well. Number four, give your children the best of outside wisdom. If you begin with the fear of God, if you teach discernment, if you acknowledge that there is treasure in God's world, even among pagans, then you can actually help your kids by showing them what some of this is. All men have some rot in the apples of their wisdom. If we walk with our children through these things, we can, to borrow from Augustine, plunder the Egyptians. But we can plunder them together. We can do this as a household. In another place, in his book on Christian teaching, Augustine said, quote, If those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we ought not only to shrink from it, but we ought to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. End quote. So take the good and demonstrate it. I mean, if you pretend that there's nothing good outside of someone who has professed Christianity, you're telling your kids a lie. And they'll, they may not figure it out now, but they'll figure it out later. And if they do figure it out, or when they figure it out later, they will see. If, if there's discrepancy here, what else is there discrepancy in? Whether it's the BBC, the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, or Virgil's Aeneid, help your family develop an appetite for what is wisdom. Again, provided that it begins with the fear of God. We don't read or listen to non-Christians just to prove them wrong but to see also where they are right and where they understand truth, in some cases, better than we do in particular areas. So do you love science? Read, study, think, and pursue the truth, all in submission to, the, to that which is revealed by the triune God. Do you love literature, music, gardening, building, software, or mechanics? Pursue those areas. Pursue wisdom in those areas in the fear of God and submission to His Word. If it's evil, trash it. But don't give up on something just because the world has abused it. 
God used Moses, a man filled with the fear of God and wisdom of the Egyptians, to overthrow Egypt and free the Hebrews. He used Daniel, a man who fervently loved God and was skilled in Babylonian enchantment, to turn the government of Babylon towards the triune God, not just under one king, but under, at the very least, you could say two and maybe even three, although Belshazzar's reign did not last very long from the time he submitted to God and later died. You have no idea how he's preparing you and how he's preparing your kids. You get the privilege of helping them, of walking with them in this preparation. So embrace it, delight in it, and together walk in the wisdom of God. Teach them, help them see the treasures of wisdom that are sanctified by godly fear. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for the wisdom you give. And we pray that you would help us to grow in our discernment and to lead our families in this discernment. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.